Uh, we uh, are in our second week of the study under authority, and uh, so we're going through, uh, we'll start tonight in our journey through the kings uh, of Israel and Judah, and so we'll be in our first king tonight. I know we started last week, kind of set the foundation for our study, and uh, looking at what it means to live under authority and what God says about that and uh, what it looks for us as believers as we are a part of the kingdom of God and what God has in store for us uh, as we do live under authority under him. And so tonight we're going to jump into uh, the first king, Israel's first king with Saul, and uh, we'll see what God has for us. And uh, so let's pray before we start tonight, and then we'll jump in. God, we bow before you tonight. Uh, Lord, we are grateful that, uh, God, you saw it fit that we would have copies of the things that happened uh, with humanity, God, as you interacted with us from the very beginning, God, how you provided, uh, Lord, how you directed, uh, Lord, the different ways that you did that, whether it was through priests, whether it was through judges, now we get into kings and how you uh, use people in authority to direct and to uh, play out or to work out your will. And so tonight, God, I pray that as we jump into the study of Saul, uh, God, that you'll help us to see the things uh, as they are. Uh, Lord, that we won't uh, try to spiritualize the things that are bad, uh, and we'll learn from the things that are good uh, so that we'll be instructed by your word uh, to learn from this and to grow in godliness because of it. So, Lord, we pray tonight that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in the first the king, the first king, and so we're going to go through all the kings over the next several weeks and look at where, uh, you know, how God used these kings and how God worked in the midst of these kings, and there, there'll be some good ones and there'll be some bad ones, and uh, some of these kings overlap, like for instance, Saul and David certainly overlap. Uh, we won't really spend any time tonight talking about David. He'll be next week. Uh, so we're not going to talk about uh, anything related to Saul and David's encounters. We're going to talk specifically about David. What we hope to do is pull out some character elements uh, to look at some of the ways that they interacted with God or they didn't uh, and some of the ways that God used them and some of the ways that they failed to be used by God. And so as we get into uh, Saul, we see here uh, a few chapters before we're introduced to Saul in 1 Samuel that the Philistines had captured uh, the ark and they had killed Eli's sons. Now in Samuel's child, she didn't have a child. Anna, his mom, I mentioned this last week, she was praying for a child. She didn't have a child. Uh, God provided Samuel. Samuel, then she said she would dedicate to the Lord and Samuel became a prophet. And Eli at the time was a priest and so uh, she dedicated uh, Samuel to the Lord and uh, so when Samuel was three, I believe, he went to service in, uh, under Samuel, uh, or I'm sorry, under Eli. And so as he began to do that, he began to grow, uh, the Bible says, in learning and understanding and righteousness. And so God began to use Samuel and to grow Samuel. Well, as Samuel began to grow, we talked about this last week, Eli's sons were not very uh, righteous or holy or they did bad things, we'll say it that way. And so in the midst of all this ungodliness that's taking place, Samuel grows up in godliness. And so then after Eli's sons were killed, we see that the Philistines came in 
and they took the ark. Now, if you know about the ark, Israel looked at the ark as the presence of God. And so wherever the ark was, that's where they thought the presence of God was. If you remember back in Joshua, when they stepped into the Jordan River, what did they do? The priest carrying the ark stepped in first. Remember that? And then God walled the, wall, uh, the water up. And so the ark was a very important uh, part of their history. And to them, it embodied the presence of God. And so now it's stolen. It's been taken. It's been raided. It's been captured. And so the Philistines go, and, and that's another story. If they go stick it in one of their temples to their false gods, and that doesn't go very well. And so now we don't have Eli leading as the priest. His children have been killed, and now the nation of Israel has had the presence of God, quote, taken away. And so now they don't know what to do. Now last week we, we talked about it a little bit, and I'll reintroduce the Scripture again here this evening, but we talked about how the nation of Israel then began to look around and they said, okay, well, if all these other nations have kings, then we want a king. We want a king. We want to be just like everybody else. And so uh, Israel began to ask Samuel, hey, give us a king, give us a king. And so as we see Israel begin to flounder in this, we see all of the past history of what's taken place in their life. Now, this is an important point for us to make here tonight, that Israel had things happen to them that arguably have never happened to anyone, any other nation since, right? We would probably all agree with that. You look at the history of the uh, rescue from Egypt. You look at the journey into uh, the wilderness. You look at the journey out of the wilderness. You look at the journey into the promised land, so on and so forth. You see that God had chosen the nation of Israel. God placed his hand on the nation of Israel, and God did miraculous things in the life of those people involved in the nation of Israel. We would all agree with that. And so what Israel began to do is what? The same things that you and I do. Is they began to look back and say, well, look at all those things God did. And so instead of continuing to seek after God's face and continuing to see what God had in store for them moving forward, they started looking back. And they saw, well, God did this back then, and God did this back then, and God. And so they started looking back in their life. And so I want to point out here at the beginning that there are no outward privileges. There are no past experiences of God's presence. There is no correctness of position or doctrine that you and I can adopt that can take the place of present dependence upon God. You can't say, well, I came from a godly family. Well, that is fantastic but it has absolutely no bearing on whether or not you're saved. Your salvation is contingent upon your relationship with the Lord. The Bible says that every knee shall bow, right? And so every one of us has to come up to a point in our life that we surrender to Jesus. And so we can't say, well, my heritage makes me automatically entered into the kingdom of heaven. No, it does not. But we see no past experiences. One of the things I think happens a lot of times in our walk with God is that especially initially in our life, we have these experiences with God, these God moments, if you will, that are amazing. And, you know, if we were to go around the room and, and it would be amazing to hear, but to hear all the stories, well, what has God done that's radical in your life that can only be explained by a movement of God? There'd be some amazing stories. But what you often hear people talk about when God's not doing anything presently in their life, they always refer back to, well, I, I've been saved for 24 years. Well, I got saved back, you know, especially in legalism. I got saved back in this day, that day, or whatever it may be. And that's fantastic. Everyone has a genesis in their, you know, relationship with God. But the question is, what is God doing in your life today? What are you praying that God would do today that if he doesn't show up, 
then you're going to fall flat on your face. When is the last time God radically moved in your life? Presently. And so Israel began to look back and say, well, well, look at us. I mean, can you name another nation that crossed over the Jordan River the way that we did? You know anybody else that's been through ten plagues in Egypt and survived to tell about it? And so they started looking back and saying, I feel pretty good about myself. And so in that, they began to lose sight of their dependence upon God. And then in come the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, they were drifters, okay? They would drift from land to land. Their, their name uh, has been linked to uh, the definition of wanderers, if you will. Uh, they came from along the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and here they are. They're moving into uh, God's territory, if you will. And so the Philistines stand simply for the natural man intruding into the things of God. It, possibly with David, we'll talk about David and Goliath, but, uh, you know, David stands there and Goliath is Philistine, and, you know, for 40 days he stands there and says, all right, which one of you punks is going to come out and fight me? And he's defying enough of that, and you're not going to talk about God anymore like that. I'm about to end all this. Right? And so the Philistines were basically uh, the definition of the intrusion of the things of God. Uh, Philistine, Philistinism means the intrusion of the flesh. You probably never said that word before, right? Philistinism? No? Maybe see if you can use it in a sentence tomorrow. And so we get to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. It says, Now behold, and most of these scriptures should be on your handout. Now behold, the king whom you have chosen, this is Samuel talking, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So Samuel's basically saying, this was your idea, okay? You wanted a king, you asked for a king, just like all the other nations. You want a king, you got him. And so we see now the state of Israel, right? We see the state of the people of Israel, and Israel was dead set on being just like everybody else, which is the polar opposite. You know, it's uh, only God that can do this, but it's the polar opposite of the fact that what are we studying on Sunday mornings? Being distinct, right? Being different, that God has set us apart, that we're not supposed to be like all the other nations. We're not supposed to be like everyone else. We're supposed to be separated. We're supposed to be set apart. Even from the beginning of time with Abraham, God has separated the nation of Israel from everyone else. Yet they intended that they would be the same. You see, it seems as though God gave Israel what they wanted in a king so he could use the negative of Saul to teach them to start wanting what God wants. Right? That's what it seems, is that God says, okay, well, I'm going to take this situation. I, I'm going to give you what you want. Now, if you remember last week, we said this. We said that oftentimes God gives us what we want to teach us that it's not what we want. Remember that? That God gives us what we want to teach us that it's not what we want. And so Israel is going to learn the hard way that this is not really what you want. And so we see here that God says, if that's what you want, that's what I'm going to give you. Now one of the things that we don't need to forget throughout the entire study here for the next several weeks is that God is committed to the nation of Israel. So God is committed to the nation of Israel. And God's commitment to the nation of Israel has everything to do with God's character. It has nothing to do with them following him. God didn't say, okay, because you're good and because you've done what I've asked, then I'm going to bless you. 
No, God chose the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, before Israel was a nation, God chose the nation of, nation of Israel. You can go back to Genesis chapter 12 and see that with Abraham. And so what happened is God is committed to seeing Israel through. Just like for us as believers. So the parallel for us as believers is this. Is that no matter what happens in our life, even if we begin to pursue our own interests and we get the things that we think we want, that we get, that we end up realizing that we didn't really want, God is still committed to us, right? We can all give testimony not only of the radical things that God has done in our lives, but also of the things that God has given us that we didn't need, but we asked for. Can I get an amen, right? And so we ask God oftentimes for things that we don't need, and God says, okay, that's what you want. And so sometimes I believe God gives us an opportunity to learn that on our own. And so we see God's character is the commitment to the nation of Israel. You see, often when we insist on our own way, God gives it to us. Now, here's the mistake that we make. We take it to mean that we were in His will all along. Well, it must have been God's will because it happened. You see... And we're not talking about this tonight, but I just want to stop here and, and make this point. This is where discernment comes in. Just because it happens in your life doesn't mean that it was intended to happen in your life. Right? I can go out and stand in the, in the middle of the road in front of this church, and eventually I'm going to get run over. That doesn't mean that I was intended to get run over, but it means that I kept putting myself in a position right? And it's the same thing with us, that we can say, well, God, here's what I want. Give it to me. And if God gives it to us, we take that as, well, that door opened just wide open, and God just gave that to me. No, that's where discernment comes in, that we've got to be willing to pursue God and the will of God, and it's not always easy. Matter of fact, when things always work out perfectly, sometimes I'm like, well, hang on just a second. Now, this is too easy. So we have to be careful with discernment. You see, if fleshly desires rule our heart, what will happen is we will begin to look for the wrong kind of leaders. And we're going to learn that, that this, this, uh, lesson that the nation of Israel learned. You see, we can parallel the same exact thing today, right? When we want what, is, what sounds good to us, when we want what's convenient for us, when we want a leader that will do what we want to do, or we want them to do, we're going to get it, right? I mean, I don't want to talk about politics, but, I mean, do you not see that? If you look around and you look at culture, leadership, just like we said last week, leadership is indicative of the culture. It's because the culture wants something that they desire, at least in their own flesh, and so they want to seek out someone who will give them what they want. And I just want to say, that's not leadership. Leadership is not giving what you want to those that are following you. Leadership is leading those who are following you to where they need to be. And they may not like it, right? So we have to be careful about that. So uh, 2 Timothy talks about this. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Just look around. So the key then to following God is to let God uh, let go of the things that you are convinced will take care of your needs and your problems and let God lead you. That's where discernment comes in. And this is where the nation of Israel completely went off the rails. So we get to 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. 
And we're introduced to Samuel here, in ver, uh, to Saul in verse 1. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son, so we get all the lineage of, of Saul, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so now we're introduced to King Saul. He's an idea of the times in which he lived, all of the traits that everyone would admire. He was tall. The Bible says he's handsome. He possesses all these qualities that everyone desired. Uh, He was naturally excellent, according to Scripture. And so he was the favored son of a favored nation. And he has all of these opportunities that are right in front of him, okay? You see, the life of Saul starts with great possibilities. It starts with great potential. But as we'll see, it ends in the greatest of tragedies. You see, if we only had verse 1 and 2 of Saul's life, and this is all we knew about Saul, we'd say, this guy's got it together. This is who I wish I was more like. He's taller than everybody. He's handsome. He's got a a lineage of people. And so the heritage, they were proud to proclaim the heritage of uh, Saul's life. So if this was all we knew, we would would feel pretty confident that, hey, I think this is going to work out. You see, Saul is the only Israelite specifically noted in the Bible as being tall. Everywhere else, it was only Israel's enemies whose height was noted. Interesting, isn't it? You see, this characteristic would normally be considered an asset, uh, but it's possible that the author here may have included this detail as a subtle indictment of Israel's first king. You see, Israel had asked for a king, remember, just like all the other nations, chapter 8, verse 20, and the Lord was giving them exactly what they asked for, even down to the physical details. Now, what that tells us is that God is love, because they asked for that, right? But God didn't give them what they wanted and leave them alone. So let's, let's fast forward now. We're in verse 3, so we get verses 1, we get verse 2, we feel pretty good about Saul. And so then in verse 3, it says there were some donkeys Saul's father had, and they were lost. And so Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and he passed through uh, the land of Shalisha, uh, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin, and they didn't find them. And then they came to the land of Zuf, and Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But his servant said, Behold, there's a man in the city of God. in the man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered, verse 8, Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So when I think about this story, I just have to pause and think for a second. 
Samuel is giving uh, words from God. If you're Samuel, and we're not going to talk about this tonight, but I just have to say this. If you're Samuel, and someone comes to you and says, hey, we lost our donkeys, do you know where they're at? Don't you feel like that's a waste of a gift? Right? Am I the only person who thinks that? Apparently I am. Okay. So we're introduced to Saul, all right? And so we, we find a few things right out of the gate with Saul. First of all, here's the future king, and he knows absolutely nothing about Samuel. Why in the world would he not know about Samuel the prophet, right? But he knows nothing about him. Though Samuel lived in a nearby town and was known, according to the Bible, by all of Israel, even the young slave, Yet he was unknown to Saul. And so Saul is not tuned in. This gives us a clue about Saul. He's not tuned in to the spiritual things that are happening around him. Number two, Saul fails to consider seeking divine help. Right? So in other words, Saul doesn't say, look, we can't find the donkeys. Let's ask for God's intervention. He doesn't do that. Right? So what he does is he says, the slave says, hey, we should... We should go and ask Samuel for help. And so the king is not only, the future king is not only unaware of anything spiritual happening around him, he's also not interested in seeking anything spiritual for himself. And then last but not least, we see that uh, Saul assumes that you have to buy spiritual favors. Do you notice that? The slave says, hey, let's go see Samuel, the, the prophet. And Saul's first response is, well, I don't have any money. How are we going to pay him? Right? And so what he's doing is he's trying to buy God's favor. And so this gives us a clue into the life of Saul and the way that he thinks. And so we see here in, verse, uh, in chapter 9, verse 17, the Bible says, When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And so Samuel had had a vision the day before, and God told Saul, or Samuel, hey, there's going to be a guy that you see tomorrow, and when you see him coming, I'm going to tell you who he is. And voila, God does exactly what he says. And so now we have Samuel seeing Saul coming up. And so and then in chapter 10, the Bible says that Samuel took a flask of oil. So Saul came up. He had a conversation with Samuel. Uh, they began to talk about what they were looking for. And then so Samuel, knowing the conversation that he was really there for, said, all right, well, look, uh, here's what I want you to do. And so he took a flask of oil and he poured it on Saul's head and he kissed him, chapter 10, verse 1. And he said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So Saul now finds out for the first time God's called you to be the king. Okay? And then in verse 9, and I'm hitting the high points tonight. You'll notice that in your handout. It says that in verse 9, when he turned back to leave Samuel, this is Saul, God gave him another heart. And so God's intention wasn't that Saul's never going to follow me, so I'm not going to have anything to do with him. No, that's not what happened. It's just like anybody in our life that's not pursuing God. God's still pursuing them. And God can still save them. And God's desire is still to work in their life. And it's the same with Saul. So the Bible says God gave Saul another heart. And all of these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. So Saul begins to exhibit 
uh, spiritual things in his life. That God had ordained him to be the king of Israel. And so he began to assume that role. So we would think. Because just a few verses later, when Saul gets back, the donkeys haven't been found. And his uncle asked him, hey, what happened? Because Saul said, we went to see Samuel. And the Bible says in verse 16 that Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, the Bible says, of which Saul had spoken, he did not tell him anything. He didn't say a word. He's been anointed as king. He's prophesying as someone who is spiritual. He's been changed. The Bible says God had given him a new heart, and yet it is not what he talks about. Now, uh, think about your life. When you got saved, when God gave you a new heart, was that a secret? Is that something that you kept to yourself? Of course not. It was something that you declared about God. And so it's interesting. All of these things give us indications of who Saul really was. I mean, we see uh, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Jacob. These were all depicted in Scripture as skillful shepherds. And yet here Saul is uh, portrayed as someone who can't even keep up with a few donkeys. Right? He's someone that can't even uh, find a few large animals that had wandered away from his father's house. And so we get to uh, verse 22, so Saul doesn't tell anybody. And so Samuel comes into town and says, okay, well, I'm going to anoint the new king of Israel. This is the public proclamation. And where do they find Saul? Well, look, verse 22. So they inquired again of the Lord. Samuel says, just like with David, is there somebody else? Don't you have another son? And so they inquired of the Lord, and Samuel said, is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. What a king, right? Is that somebody you want to follow? I'm not following that guy. I'm just telling you. And so here's Saul, who's been anointed as king, who God has pricked his heart to change him, who has been declared the new king of Israel. Now he wants to keep it a secret, and he wants to go and hide. Now this is a stark parallel to what we'll see next week. You see, this is an indication of Saul's insecurity and his lack of self-confidence. If you look in chapter 15, Samuel tells Saul when he's... Uh, when he's uh, getting on to him, if you will, uh, when he's confronting him, he says, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? You see, what happened is Saul never assumed the title that God had given him. You see, spiritually, God had put Saul in control of the nation of Israel. But Saul never assumed that responsibility. We've talked about this for the last couple of weeks, but you know, we talked about this last week. Men, you're the spiritual leader of your home. Assume that responsibility. Take responsibility for that role that God has given you. Uh, parents, you are the spiritual leaders of your children. Assume that responsibility. Take leadership in that. God has given you the authority to do that. God has given you the opportunity to do that. And God has also equipped you to do that. And so Saul, in all that he had, steps aside. Now, it's quite the parallel from David. Saul is hiding when he is called to be used by God, while David is doing what? David's out serving in the field. You'll see uh, next week with David that they, they say, Jesse, don't, don't you have another son? And he says, well, David's out in the field. And they say, well, get him here. And David becomes the next king of Israel. And so there's a principle embedded in this. God uses those who are serving where they are, 
not those who are sitting on the sidelines. God uses those who are serving where they are. So I don't know where you're at in your life spiritually, but I do know that wherever you are spiritually, there's some work for you to do. There's something for you to be a part of. It's not that you say, well, God, I'm over here sitting down on the sidelines, and when you got something for me, just let me know, Coach. You know, if you want to put me in the game, I'm ready. No. God says, look, you're wearing a jersey. You're getting the game now. So if you're sitting on the bench waiting for your turn, you're getting the water bottles ready, and you're encouraging the team, right? Whatever, wherever you're at, you know, I, I mentioned this before, but, you know, an old preacher used to say, bloom where you're planted. So wherever you find yourself, serve in that moment. Don't sit around and say, oh, I'm just waiting on God to tell me what to do. Because you know what's going to happen? You're going to keep waiting. And you're going to keep waiting. And then you're going to end up doing nothing. Because you're going to justify every, yourself out of every opportunity. And so the principle here is serve where you are. In his, one of his first acts as king, uh, Saul is hiding. And so then we see that Saul uh, assumes the role as king. Saul goes into battle with the Philistines. He's greatly outnumbered in chapter 13. And uh, it says in verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not, not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And so Saul wanted to know, God, what, what should we do? Should we go against the Philistines or not? And Samuel was supposed to come and offer a burnt offering because Samuel was part of the priesthood, right? Well, Saul was not. So Saul took matters into his own hands, and instead of waiting on God, he went before God, and he tells Samuel, hey, you never showed up, so I had to do it myself. You see, from the outset, Saul is more interested in the benefits of God instead of God himself. Woe is me, right? That so oftentimes we talk about the benefits of God. Instead of saying, no, you, you get the relationship with God. And so Saul completely missed this. Saul took matters into his own hands. And so for him, he had the appearance on the outside that he was doing things that needed to be done. But clearly, he was lacking on the inside. And so in just a short matter of time, we find out a lot about Saul. You see, time reveals character. Time reveals character. You can't. You can't go on faking it long. You can't go on pretending long. You will be found out. You will fizzle out. Your stick to your perseverance, my perseverance in the gospel has everything to do with God and nothing to do with me. Because if it was up to all of us, we'd have quit a long time ago. Right? Somebody made us mad. It didn't go the way that we wanted it to go. It, didn't, it wasn't done the way we wanted it to do. And so we just bailed. That's what the flesh does. The flesh says, I'm out if I'm not getting my way. Perseverance is from the gospel. Perseverance is from the Spirit of God. Saul, we can see here, was not depending upon God. Same situation now a few years later have passed. And God commands Saul in 1 Samuel 15. He says, um, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all, A-L-L, that they have done. So do not spare them. Both, uh, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so if you'll rewind in Joshua, when the Israelites entered the promised land, they were attacked from behind by the Amalekites. 
okay? The Amalekites came in and attacked them from behind. Now, just think logically with me here. Who's in the back of the line? There's million-plus people. The most valiant are up front, right? The men, you know, follow me, ladies. Follow me, children. I'm going to lead the way if we come across someone. What I'm going to be the warrior. So all the fighters are up front. Well, who's in the back? People who can't walk good. People who can't walk fast. So we got children. We got elderly. We got the maimed or the lame that, that are in the back that, that can't walk well, okay? And that are in the back of the line. And so what do the Amalekites do? They see an opportunity, and instead of fighting head-on with the nation of Israel, they circumvent that, and they go to the very back, and they start attacking people in the back, the defenseless people. And so they're, they're killed an elderly, and they're killing children. They're uh, fighting against the nation of Israel, ultimately against God. And what happens? God says, you will not get away with that. And so we see here in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel says, and he's talking to the king of the Amalekites, he says, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. So here's the indication of who the Amalekites killed. Children. And so God says, no, 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 that's not how that works. You're not doing that. And so 500 years have passed, and yet God has not forgotten. And so God is using Saul to, to do, to, to uh, punish the, the Amalekites. And yet Saul doesn't do it. Saul did not obey. You see in verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So they took all the bad stuff and said, No, we don't want any of that. It's not worth anything. But we want to keep the good things. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. And God said this, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So here's Samuel, upset about what happened. And rightfully so. I mean, think about the family members that, you know, it's been 500 years since the Amalekites did this to the nation of Israel. They finally have a king. You know, in their minds, they've got this physical version of a king now. And so God says, all right, now we've got to go take care of some unfinished business. And yet Saul doesn't fulfill the promise. You see, what we would call partial obedience, God calls disobedience. You see, we can't spiritualize, we can't add to what God has told us to do. We can't say, well, God, I like this part about what you told me to do, but I don't like this part, so I'm only going to do the part that I like. You see, that's what Saul did. He says, okay, God, I hear that you want me to commit the Amalekites to destruction, and you want me to do away with everything, A-L-L, but I have a better idea. And so he didn't do it. So how often do we do that? How often do we offer up our sacrifices of time or money on Sundays when we have not been obedient throughout the week? You see, it's easy to think that we're doing fine because our actions fit the religious requirement when our hearts are still full of sinful, stubborn willfulness. You see, God's not interested in you and I fulfilling a religious requirement. He says that's the danger of church. That's the danger of church. Is that we can show up on Sunday 
We can have our Sunday best. And, and people can see us and, hey, yeah, Matt was in church Sunday. That was great. Matt has been in church three weeks in a row. That's fantastic. But the question is, am I fulfilling a religious requirement because everybody sees that? What am I doing during the week? What are people, what are people seeing me uh, participate in during the week? What's my attitude during the week? What are things that I'm involved in during the week? It's easy to show up on Sunday, right, and say it's culturally acceptable that I can show up and I can look like I've got it all together. Look, God's not interested in us checking boxes. This religious requirement that Saul thought he was checking, he said, now wait a minute, I did most of what God called me to do. And God said, well, wait a second. That's not what I told you to do. You did what you wanted to do. So here's the question. Are there areas of my life, are there areas of my life in which I've been trying to substitute good things for the obedience to God? Is there good things in our lives that keep us from obedience? Are there valiant things in our life, things that somebody from the outside will say, well, that's amazing, that's, that's a good thing, that's a commitment, that's, that's, that's good. Maybe even religious things. Is that, what, is that what's going to keep us from obedience? You see, Saul felt like he was doing the right thing. I mean, we can maybe even imagine that Saul was convinced he was doing the right thing. Hey, I took care of all the bad guys. I just love the good stuff. We're going to sacrifice those animals. We're going to give them to God. I, I kept the best ones. Right? It seemed in his mind, I'm doing, I'm doing something good here. Samuel's going to really be proud of me. God's going to really be proud of me. But what happened is he let good get in the way of obedience. The question is not what do we want to do. The question is what does God want us to do? And Saul was not interested in that. Saul was interested in doing what Saul wanted to do. You see, in 1 Samuel 15, 30, Samuel, uh, Saul said this, and here's how we know. Saul said, uh, then he said, this is Saul, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. He said, I've sinned. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to honor me in front of the people. For what? For what? Saul, what do you want me to honor you for? Disobedience? I think there's a lot of pieces of this story. Look what Saul says. I've sinned, yet honor me. He skipped right over it. It wasn't I've sinned, and we got to deal with that right now. Right? It's just like with, uh, with, when Samuel confronts David. And he says, you are that man. You're the one who, had the, who took the one lamb from the person that that's the only, only thing that they had. You're the one who did that. And yet Saul being confronted here, he's like, you know what? You're right. You're right. You got me. Uh, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to honor me in front of everyone, in front of the elders before Israel, and return with me. And so not only does he want to be honored for something he didn't do, then he also wants to be recognized or associated with someone who is with God. That goes back to our very first point. Affiliation is not salvation. You can sit around all day long with somebody who's saved, and that's not going to save you. Only Jesus can do that, and it's got to be you, right? And so Saul says, look, if I can just be with you, and if you'll honor me, the people aren't going to know about this. Let's just keep that to ourselves. 
You see, Saul is more concerned with what people think than in truly repenting of his sin. He was remorseful, but not repentant. He was remorseful, but not repentant. Here's tall Saul, right? Tall Saul. He's handsome. He's got everything together. He's got a good family history. Everybody knows him. And so life was probably pretty easy for Saul growing up. He was probably the biggest kid. Nobody picked on him. He didn't know what it was like to be bullied. He got anything he wanted, right? And so here's Saul growing up in this, you know, gold platter society, getting the things that he wants. And then all of a sudden, here's Samuel and says, no, you can't do that. You see, I think that that's a, a, a big part of our life is that there has to be self-denial, right? That there's got to be, you've got to do what God calls you to do, and that it often requires not what you want to do because your flesh is always warring against God, and your flesh is going to want to pursue the things that are convenient and comfortable, and we have to be very careful that we step outside of our comfort zone and pursue the things that God wants us to pursue, and oftentimes that means denying ourselves. You see, Saul, Saul was remorseful, but he's not repentant. How do we know that? Because he refers to God as the Lord your God. He doesn't say the Lord my God. You see, when our confidence is in ourselves, when our confidence is in our own abilities, rather than God and the work that he will do through us, we leave ourselves open to the destructive pressures of the world that comes from our own flesh. If we pursue ourselves and we depend on our own abilities, you and I will utterly fail. You see, Saul was willing to sacrifice obedience to God on the altar of the approval of others. That's why Samuel told him it is better to obey than to sacrifice. So we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 32, it says, Samuel said, bring here to me Agag. And so they have this conversation. Saul was supposed to, to commit to utter destruction all the Amalekites, he didn't. As a matter of fact, not only did he not uh, kill all the animals and, and commit all of them to utter destruction, he actually captured King Agag, the king. So he brings Agag back as almost like this, you know, victory of war and parades Agag around. And so Samuel says, bring me Agag. And so Samuel, remember, is a prophet. Samuel is not a warrior. Samuel is a prophet. And so uh, Samuel said, bring him here. So it uh, says, Agag came to him cheerfully. Now, you got to imagine. Imagine Agag at this point. He's got to feel pretty good about his odds, right? There's this great war that happened. All of his people were killed. He survives. He's captured. He's feeling pretty confident. Now, Agag, remember, is the king of the Amalekites. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. So he says, I'm good. You know, if they were going to kill me, it was going to happen back during the war. They didn't do it. And Samuel said, as your child, and I referenced this earlier, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That is very graphic, isn't it? But the point is this. Samuel did it. Not Saul. 
Who was commanded to do it? Saul was commanded to do it. But he didn't do it. You see, God calls each of us to do something in the kingdom. To be participants in the kingdom. To push back darkness. We talked about this last week. In the kingdom. To have a spiritual authority in our life for the kingdom. And Saul circumvented that. And so what happened? It was not Samuel's job to kill King Agag. It was not Samuel's job to commit them to destruction. Samuel is a prophet. It was Saul's job to do that. But yet, God will continue to complete the mission, right? And so what did God do? God brought Samuel in and said, okay, Samuel, you have to do this. And he brings Samuel into the picture, and Samuel did what Saul should have done. Look, one of the scariest things to me is to stand before God and to realize the things that I missed, right? That God wanted me to be a part of things. That God, God wanted me to be a part of this story or that story. Or he wanted me to be a part of this mission or that mission. And for me to stand before God and in my own self-fulfilled vision, miss those things. And God say, well, you know, I wanted you to be a part of this. I wanted you to be a part of that. But you missed it. Right? Isn't that something? You ever thought about that? That you stand before God? And so here's Saul committed or commanded to do something. Commanded to be the warrior, the leader, the king of Israel. And yet the prophet has to step in and do this atrocious act. And now what is he doing? It is, it is God's justice upon people who did something to God's people. Right? So Samuel had to kill Agag to fulfill God's commands. I want to do all that God's called me to do. I want to be everywhere that God's called me to be. Now, I know I'm not going to do that. I'm not perfect. But I want to do my best to be in every situation, to make myself available in every situation that I can be as obedient as possible in every situation that God puts me in. And sometimes that means that we just have to commit and we have to say yes and let God work the details out. So after choosing David to serve in the kingdom, uh, and after David killed Goliath, Saul begins to resent David, and we'll learn more about David next week, uh, especially after he begins to hear the uh, songs of David slaying tens of thousands and Saul not. Saul gets upset about that, right? And so he begins to get jealous, and, you know, all these things are running through his mind. And so uh, Saul sets his mind and his heart to kill David. Although, as we'll see, it's certainly impossible to thwart God's plans. And so in pursuit of David, Saul does what to me is one of the most atrocious things in Scripture. Uh, He goes to the priest, so again, he has no regard for anything to do with God's people. Samuel has to end up killing Agag. Uh, he goes to, uh, to Nob and uh, he hears about David being there. And uh, David got Goliath's sword. And so he thinks all the priests are in against him. And so in pursuit of David, Saul goes there. And, he, and he, he says, hey, where's David at? Which one of you guys are involved in this? And nobody says anything. And so Saul instructs his men to kill all of the priests. That just gets my blood boiling. And so he instructs uh, uh, the guy, his guys to kill all the priests, and they won't do it. And so the, the, uh, the uh, Doeg, the Edomite, who was the tattletale who told, he ends up being the one to do it. And so 
Saul, you have to, we're getting in Saul's mind here that, you know, sometimes he feels like he's doing what he's supposed to do, and then sometimes he's totally going against what God wants him to do, and then he becomes insecure, and he never assumes the role of king of Israel in his heart. Now, in function or in title, that's what he is, but not in function. And so uh, then we see that when Samuel had this conversation with Saul, that God separated from Saul. That Saul basically uh, had done as much as he could do, and God said, that's it. And so no conversations take place between God and Saul. Samuel has no other words from God for Saul. And then Samuel dies. And so now Saul's in a pickle. So he doesn't have Samuel. He is not sought after God. He has no relationship with God at this point. And so what does he do? So what Saul does, and you've probably read some of this before, uh, but Saul decides that he needs to go to a fortune teller and to figure out what he needs to do because he feels like he needs to go to battle, but he doesn't know if he should or not. And typically God's men uh, would give them instruction on whether or not this was what God wanted them to do. And so Saul dresses up, disguises, I mean all of this is so wrong. So he disguises himself. And in a last-ditch effort to hear from God, he goes to a fortune teller. So let's read, 1 Samuel 28. It says, Saul said to his servant, Seek out a man, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said, Behold, there's a medium in Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, And bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And so she says, Okay, okay, well, if you're not really Saul, then I'll do it. Now, we could have a whole conversation about fortune tellers and all that. Uh, But suffice it to say that when she does, what happens? You can read on in 1 Samuel 28. So what happens? Well, she's surprised. She's surprised that Samuel actually shows up. And so there's a lot of theories on this. But uh, suffice it to say that God allows Saul to see Samuel. So this blows fortune telling completely out of the water because she's surprised that what she was getting paid to do actually worked. Okay? So that's all I have to say. Uh, And then, so God allows Saul to see Samuel. And Samuel says, look, man, you blew it. I'm I'm summarizing here. And, uh, And so what does Saul do? Saul decides, okay, well, then I should go to war. And so instead of, what do we see here with Saul? Instead of again, instead of going to God, he takes matter into matters into his own hands. And he tries to figure out what the next move is. And so Samuel scolds him. And Saul never hears whether or not to go into battle. And so he says, well, then I'll just go. So let's pick up in 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel chapter 31, uh, verses 2 through 4. And the Philistines overtook Saul. Of course, who didn't see that coming? And his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan, his son, and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust through it 
uh, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So Saul, in an hour of hopeless distress, once again doesn't turn to God. He becomes the first suicide that we have a definite record of in Scripture. So Saul, who had all, if you remember at the beginning, who had all of the potential. He's tall, he's handsome, got a great lineage. God is speaking to him. God wants to use him. And yet in all of that, Saul continues to look other places instead of turning to God. And so if you'll remember last week, we said there would be a a few series principles throughout our study. And so I want to revisit those, and then I want us to apply those to Saul. So the first thing that we said last week is that God's authority always begins with His Word. God's authority always begins with His Word. And I think this should be on your handout. Multiple times, God used Samuel to instruct Saul, but yet Saul never responded with obedience. Saul never responded with obedience. God's authority always begins with His Word. God's authority always begins with His Word. I was talking to somebody earlier this week, and uh, they uh, said that, you know, hey, uh, here's here's some thoughts that are going through my mind uh, about uh, some things of God. And I said, okay. I said, well, let's think about what you're saying, and then let's go to Scripture, and let's see what Scripture says about it. And so we went to Scripture, and uh, I showed him a couple of uh, points of where what he was thinking in his mind, Scripture gives us instruction on. And I said, and so here's what the Scripture teaches us about what you're thinking. And so he was able to link his thoughts to Scripture and get clarity and direction on what God wanted him to do. You see, God's authority always begins with His Word. And so, multiple times, God, through Samuel, would speak to Saul, and yet he wouldn't obey. He wouldn't obey. The authority is always God's Word. Number two, God's authority authority is never challenged by man. God's authority is never challenged by man. God will always prevail. Remember we said that last week. So, Saul may have been king in title, as I mentioned earlier, but he was never king in function. He was never the king in function. He never acted like a king. I mean, from the very beginning, he's hiding in the luggage area. And so maybe in title, but never in function. You see, God was already raising up the next king long before David ever received the title. Remember, and we'll talk about next week, but Samuel went to anoint David, and uh, Samuel was afraid that if he anointed David that Saul may find out and that he would be in trouble for that. But God was already raising someone up. You see, in spite of Saul's insistence to kill David, God only allows what is under his control. Again, God's authority is never challenged by man. And so in everything and all of the times that David and Jonathan and and Saul were sitting at the table, and as you read 1 Samuel, Saul would get mad and throw a spear at uh, Jonathan or at David. It never worked. And all the times that David would find uh, Saul in a cave and he was able to tear some of his robe or when he was sleeping he was able to take a few of his items to prove that he wasn't out to kill Saul but that Saul was out to kill David. And yet, guess what happened? Nothing. David did not die by the hand of Saul because God was preserving Saul because God's authority 
Even in spite of Saul's disobedience, God's authority is never challenged by man. And then number three, last week we said to have authority, we must live under authority. To have authority, we must live under authority. And so our closing principle and our reminder from last week is this, is that we can never lead until we learn to follow. Everyone is under the authority of someone. You see, I think what the beginning demise was in Saul's life, and this is Matt thinking after you know, studying the life of Saul, uh, what is it that I think was his demise? And it was that Saul didn't want to follow anybody. Saul didn't want anybody to tell him what to do. And so Saul never learned how to follow, and so Saul then never could become a leader. And so in our own walk with Jesus, we've got to learn to follow Jesus if we ever intend on leading other people. Everyone is under the authority of someone. And so as we have looked at briefly the life of Saul, there's a lot of nuances that we could dig into. But I just wanted to give you some highlights tonight of the book of Saul or the book of Samuel that talks about Saul. But to give us some insight into some of the different ways that he acted in hopes that we can glean from the character of Saul and it be a warning to us, right? That we shouldn't sit on the sidelines and wait, that we should be serving where we're at, that we should listen in obedience to the things that God has in store for us instead of trying to blaze our own path, right? And that we, and if we're ever going to follow God, if we're ever going to lead in the kingdom, that we've got to be followers, that we've got to be willing to submit to those that are in authority. And we've got to be willing to follow Jesus so that when God calls us to be the lead, then we will be prepared to do that. It was many, many, many years before David became the leader, but he always did what? He always submitted to Saul as king because that's how God works. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for the... Uh, God, the history of...